Good morning. Uh, I'm excited, and uh, I wasn't sure I was going to preach today because I thought, well, getting back, who knows what I'll feel like, but um, I thought, I'll have lots of time on the, uh, on the plane ride, like un- uninterrupted, and I slept, but I didn't really sleep. It's, the, it's, it's plane sleep, which doesn't count. Uh, it, it's worthless, basically. So um, grab your Bibles this morning. Uh, I do want to uh, uh, have you open to Acts chapter uh, nine, we'll be starting there. And I'm going to recap, but I just want to say thanks to Aaron for uh, last week. I really appreciated um, him just explaining the text and uh, sticking to it, and I thought he did a great job, so thank you. And um, if you missed it, go back and listen uh, so that you can make sense of this week. So let me give you a recap starting a little bit before uh, where we're at in the story, just so that we can all be on the same page. So that uh, chapter eight, follows the stoning of uh, Stephen, who is the first martyr for Christ explicitly. And this leads to an intense persecution of the church at the hands of Saul, right? And Saul, we're told, is ravaging the church. And this word for ravaging is the same word that's used for a lion tearing apart its prey. So this is what Saul has for the church in this moment. And because because of this, uh, we're told that the church then scatters. And we're told everyone scatters except for the apostles who stay in Jerusalem. Um, Now, lest you miss what happened in that moment, it's not that people lived in Jerusalem and then got sent out. It's that they had come into Jerusalem at Pentecost, and they had stayed after they heard the gospel. And so they'd been there for roughly three years or so, enjoying the fellowship, enjoying uh, the blessing of uh, the favor that they had. Um, But after that, once the persecution broke out, we see that they're dispersed. And what they do is they return home. At that point, they go back to where they came from, and they're carrying the gospel with them. And so we're told everyone but the apostles leave Jerusalem. Why? Because um, they basically had a target on their backs. And so what Luke does then in that moment is we zoom in on Philip, who's one of the Hellenistic Jews, who was appointed to oversee the distribution of the food. Remember, they had a problem with the Hellenistic widows being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so we zoom in on Philip, and we follow his story because he doesn't go back home. He goes down to Samaria. And we, we follow him into Samaria with the gospel. Signs and wonders accompany his uh, preaching of the gospel. Demons are cast out. Remember, people are being healed. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen and what would accompany the, the kingdom moving forward. And so we see it advancing, adding new nations who had been disinherited. And then uh, at that moment, uh, we see that a new, a new people group have accepted the gospel. And so they call down the apostles, Peter and John, and they... Um, they, they uh, give them the Holy Spirit, or the, the, the Holy Spirit uses them, uh, or God uses them as a, a vessel to give the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. And at that moment, we see uh, the first false believer, which was Simon the, the magician, or Simon Magus, right? Which, which uh, he, he heard the message of the gospel. He believed, we're told. But then after that, we find out that once he sees uh, the Holy Spirit being given through the laying on of hands, he offers to buy this power. He wants to control the Holy Spirit. Right? We talked about that being a pagan idea about being able to manipulate the power of God for your own ends and for your own purposes. And he wanted to use this for his own ends and his own purposes. And so Peter rebukes Simon. He says that he's headed for hell along with his money if, if he does not repent of the intention of his heart. Right? And we're told that that intention was, was misplaced. And um, I, I didn't get to add this in that sermon, but I want to add it now because I just think it's such an interesting detail. So Irenaeus and a couple other uh, church fathers record that Simon becomes the father of Gnosticism. So if, if, uh, if you find that uh, 
interesting that without, without the ability to actually receive the Holy Spirit because he wanted to manipulate it, he goes a different way about it, and he talks about secret knowledge. So that's neither here nor there, but just an interesting tidbit that I wish I had gotten to say at that moment. But Gnosticism is a competing idea, and it's an anti-Christian value. It's an anti-Christ spirit that existed then, and it exists now in our own day. But revival is going throughout Samaria because of the preaching gospel. We're told there's much joy, and, uh, and, and many are coming to faith. And uh, then we're still following the story of Philip as he's going through Samaria. And uh, he's told then by an angel of the Lord to go into a specific place at a specific time upon which he happens upon this Ethiopian eunuch, we're told, who is a servant to the, uh, the queen. Uh, and when he performs this first mobile chariot evangelism ever recorded, right? And uh, he, he hops on to the chariot. And the Ethiopian man is then saved and baptized. And there's a curious note at the end of this story which is where Aaron left off. And so I want to pick it up right at the end of uh, the baptism. And he's coming up out of the water uh, or something near that. And it, and it says this, that Philip was not seen any longer by the Ethiopian. And, and then it says, but he was found in Azotus, which is like some 40 miles away or something, right? And so the question here is, is he teleported? Right? That was, that, that's what's all burning on your hearts this morning. I need to know if Philip was, was teleported in the Spirit. So just a quick show of hands. How many of you guys say he was teleported? Okay. Are you also Star Trek fans? Just curious at the same time. Yeah, yeah bring me up, Scotty. Okay. So um, I think not. Now, I, I think he's not teleported. Um, and uh, we, can, we, can, we can discuss why. But I want to clue you in onto something that happens here. It doesn't say that he, he disappeared and rematerialized in Azotus. It says that he wasn't seen anymore by the eunuch and that he was found then in Azotus. Well, the word that's used here emphasizes, emphasizes being moved by force or by an outside force. Okay? And uh, this is the same word that we, we use that's in, uh, translated rapture. Right? It means to, to be moved by another force outside of yourself. There's another time uh, where Paul is on trial, and it looks like the people are literally going to tear him apart, limb from limb, and it says that they remove him, they snatch him up out of this crowd. That's the word that's used here for Philip being removed from this place. And I don't think the emphasis so much is on how he got there, but why he got there. Okay? Why did he go? Why was he where he was at? Why was he going the way he was going and then going somewhere else? So if you kind of follow the map, um, it, the, the route doesn't make much sense in terms of uh, what Philip's doing. He goes north into Samaria, then he goes back down to Jerusalem, and then he goes out to this desert place, and he meets this man on his way back to Ethiopia. And then it says, then he goes to Azotus, which is on, um, down the, the west coast, and then he goes, and then he's finally found in Caesarea, which is where he winds up. So... The question here is this outside force, the timing of things going on, and what has Philip been doing other than following the lead of someone else? That someone else is the Holy Spirit, right? Philip has been continually told to go here at a time and go, go do this thing or go see this person, which he's not um, clued in on at the particular moment when he's told to do it. And so we get today in chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, which is a famous passage, but I, I want to focus today on, on the reality of what it means to have a, a spirit-led logistics, okay? Logistics is just the, the means, the, the planning of getting one thing to one place and the, the means of doing so and how that happens, which is Holy Spirit planning and direction. So let me pray, and then um, I know that was kind of a long recap, 
But here we are. So, Father God, you're good. I, I thank you this morning for this opportunity to um, turn to your word together. I ask that you would speak um, to our hearts uh, as we just sang. Um, may that be our petition this morning, God, that you would speak to us and that you would build us up in the faith, that we might uh, attain unity in Christ, that we would be conformed to his image by what we hear this morning. Uh, may your truth be planted deep in us, that it might do its work inform us and shape us. And God, I just ask for um, your help to um, speak clearly, keep my lips from air, and keep our ears open to hear your truth. God, we ask that by your spirit you would help us do this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So there is a, a group of people, and they show up at the bus stop, and uh, they need to get to work, Okay. And uh, this is a parable about Christian, Christian living and trying to find uh, God's will. And so a lot of different people are trying to figure out how to get to work that morning. And so one person is waiting for the bus to show up with their name in the front little window, right? When the bus pulls up with my name in it, with my name on it, I know that will be the bus that I should get on this morning and arrive at work. The second person is waiting and they see bus number 29 pull up. And they say, it's February 29th, a leap year. What are the odds of this bus having the number 29, it being a leap day on a leap year today? This must be the bus I'm supposed to get on this morning. The third person uh, um, is looking for the bus that doesn't stop at any of the places that they feel are immoral right? It's not going to go to the movies. It's not stopping at the smoke shop, the liquor store. They're going to just take the moral bus to work that morning, okay? Another person is seen under the bench, and they're, they're looking at what appear to be ancient carvings that may make some sort of map to their destination. And so you, they see them, and they're trying to etch in this map, and they're trying to figure out the bus that will be taking the route that God has divinely implanted on the bottom side of the bench. And luckily for them, they had the insight that morning to look underneath the bench or maybe blessed by them, right? So that person is looking for that route. And um, the last person is praying that the bus that God does not want them to take will not open the door, right? The bus pulls up. If God doesn't want me on this bus, the door will remain shut, okay? So we have a group of people all trying to get to work that morning, going different ways about it, Yes? Well, by some miraculous miracle of God, they all wind up in the same place. Can you believe it? At the same time, can you believe it? Okay? So miraculously, they all, they all arrive, same place, same time, but they all have different stories about how they got there. Do they not? And they all have different reasons why they got there. Do they not? Okay? I got here because I discerned correctly God's timing for me that day. I got on the right bus. I discerned the right map. I saw the right sign. And therefore, I knew that this was the bus I was supposed to get on this morning. Are, are you tracking with the point of this parable? Okay. Well, I hope you are. So one of the clearest and most necessary roles, and yet the most ignored and routinely misunderstood roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is Him um, leading us. But not just that he leads us. I think we're aware that he's supposed to lead us. But how does he do that? How does he do that? Now, full disclosure, I've been all of those people at the bus stop at some point in my life. Have you not? Trying to make a decision. And you're like, maybe there's a secret code somewhere that I missed. If I read the Bible in reverse, 
Maybe that's, that's the thing, right? Or you're just trying to find something that clearly tells you what it is that you're supposed to do. And I think we struggle with this unnecessarily. So I'll say, I'll say why in three general categories. And then we'll look at how the Holy Spirit is leading Philip and how he's leading people in uh, Scripture and how we might learn from that. Okay, so three reasons why I think we struggle with this unnecessarily. The first is primarily this. We forget that the Spirit is not a force. He's not an object, but a person. And we miss that. And we're looking for a greater feeling of something than we used to have before. Or some particular fuzzy or warm feeling or, or some kind of um, nonsensical indication about God speaking to us. Instead of realizing that the Holy Spirit is a, a person who is and can speak and has spoken. Okay? We also tend to divide our lives into sacred and secular. This decision matters because it falls under the, the, the category of morality. And therefore, this morning, uh, or for any particular decision, I need to make sure this is what the Holy Spirit wants for me, that I might not step into sin. But then you have a, a whole other category of decisions and, and problems and choices that don't, for you, seem to fall into the sacred category, right? It's not, it's not moral. It doesn't seem to have a particular impact on whether or not it's sin or not, but it's just maybe something that's confusing. And so we sort of create this dichotomy in our lives, and, and we, we say, well, Holy Spirit will lead me in the stuff I need to know that's not sin, but all the other stuff I'll take care of right? That's, that's another approach that we have. And then the third, and I think it just, it applies to all of these, is that we're often blinded to God's ways and his will by our own purposes and our own self-seeking. We want what we want. We have some things in mind about how we could get there, and we're just looking for God to bless our plans in, in hindsight, right? I've already decided where I want to go, and I just need God's stamp of approval so that I know I made the right decision, Okay? So I think that's kind of where we're at this morning. In hindsight, um, we, we kind of look back sometimes, and, and sometimes we, we can appreciate God's providential hand at work. Suppose you were going here this morning, and you got delayed by five minutes, and then you're driving down the road, and you see that there was an accident right before you, and you go, well, praise the Lord that, you know, God did that thing, and, and he saved me providentially. And, and this is the kind of thing we look backwards on, and we say, I see God's hand at work. It's the problem of looking forward and trying to find God's hand ahead of us that we most struggle with, do we not? Yes. So my guess is that you've been frustrated by this before, and so I want to make some observations going back to Aaron's text and then moving it forward into our text about the Holy Spirit working. And I I want you to note sort of the specificity of what um, the Holy Spirit is doing. That means the specific things that he's pointing to, but also the ways that it operates outside of our expectations. Okay? When you and I think about what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, we often say, well, it's, it should be common sense, right? It should just make sense. If he asks me to do something that's not, doesn't make sense, then that's probably not God or something like that. So let me just walk you through some of these. So in chapter 8, verse 25, we're told that after they had testified and spoken the word, that's they, that's the apostles and, and, uh, and Philip, they, uh, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of, of the Samaritans. So we're told that the apostles returned to Jerusalem, but Philip led by the Spirit, is told to go to the wilderness where he encounters an Ethiopian man whom we're told was returning from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship. So just to, to, I want you to think about the logistics of just trying to meet somebody in another city at the right time, let alone somebody leaving a city from a visit that you had no awareness of at the right time, right? There's some, there's some specificity to that kind of go here and find this person, Right? So he's going, he finds, he happens upon this man, and um, 
Philip is told to leave, though, a productive, bustling, spirit-filled ministry and revival happening in Samaria. I think when we, get, when we get into a place where we feel like the Lord is blessing something or we're experiencing uh, goodness of God and, and blessing, we would think God surely doesn't want me to leave this thing to go to something else, let alone something else that seems to be apparently worse off, right? He says, leave this, this great thing that you're experiencing right now and go to a, a, a desolate place or a, a place that's not very inviting. So Philip's to go, told to go somewhere that doesn't make sense at a time that doesn't make sense for a reason which is unknown to him, okay? Yet he does it anyway. And so uh, what happens is he, he happens upon this eunuch who happens to be, happens to be, I'll use happens because it's not happens, it's, it's divinely planned, this eunuch who's second command in all of Ethiopia, he, he just happens to be returning from worship in Jerusalem where he would have been reminded where he was not an accepted person, right? As, as somebody who would have been outside of the fellowship in Jerusalem, he's, he's feeling somewhat rejected and he's looking for some answers. And he just happens to be reading from the scroll of Isaiah, which he happens to have brought with him about a specific section in the text that just happens to be about the Christ. Out loud. Okay? There's a lot of happens in that, right? Very specific. Okay? So all of this happens, and uh, I'm sure at that moment, when, when Philip happens on the chair and he hears the words, he's like, ah, right? Now it makes sense. But he's told to jump on this chariot, and we know the rest of the story. And, uh, so that's going back to last week, and now let's turn to the text, starting in verse 1, and uh, I'm just going to take it in chunks, and then I'll comment as we get to this individual pieces of it, okay? So now in chapter 9, here we are. But Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, a careful reading of this um, helps us to see what Saul's, what is he really after? Why, why, is, he, um, why is he frustrated? What is, what is his, what's the real source of his ire, if you will, okay? So Saul was wanting to destroy the apostles' influence specifically in Jerusalem. He's targeting Jerusalem because that's where the apostles have remained. And uh, we find out this is true later on in Acts 22 when Paul, who is Saul at this moment, when Paul is recounting this exact moment as he's giving his testimony, in Acts 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death. I binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders would bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, and listen, to bring them back in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here's why, here's why it's important to concentrate on that. He's going to Damascus not to demoralize the church in Damascus. He wants to go to Damascus to get the remnants of whatever influence has happened from the apostles to drag them back to Jerusalem and make an example out of them, okay? He wants to stomp it out from the source. So Saul's attention is about the legacy that has been created. I also uh, want you to just notice that the way, this is uh, sort of the first like formal re reference to what it is to be a follower of Christ. And I like that it's called the way because it implies that you're doing something and you're, you're following a specific kind of, uh, of a path. It speaks of activity and a path which is walked, okay? Now we're told that as he went on his way, he approached, he approached Damascus. And I, I want you to notice that it says that he went on his way because this describes most of us at most times in our life going our own way, setting our own path, deciding our own ends, and, and setting our own goals, usually without any regard to whether or not those plans or purposes are in line with what God 
would have for us. Most of the time, it's only in retrospect that we seek God's blessing on what it is that we've already decided to do. So Paul is seeking to violate God's explicit commands about murder, about love of neighbor, about what it is to, to, um, to try and uh, evangelize. They were supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. He's willing to ignore and turn a blind eye to God's explicit commands in order that he might justify his disobedience and his sin because he thinks it serves a greater end. So, in, 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 and we do this too. We, 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 we justify our, our decisions, our goals, our purposes, our needs based on what we think is a, is a more pressing uh, idea, a, a greater a greater thing to be served, and we, and we categorize all that as something that's okay. It's okay to disobey this thing because it serves a greater purpose, and that's exactly what Paul, uh, Saul is doing. But we're told that suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who, are you, who you are persecuting. So Saul is confronted by Christ at a specific time. Uh, we're told again later, as uh, Paul's telling this story in Acts 22, that it was about noon when this happened. And he, he's, he's traveled quite a ways. It's like six days journey, maybe seven days by foot to get to Damascus. As he's approaching the city, it's, uh, he's blinded by this light. He's heading to the place that he had already determined that he was going to go for his own purposes. But he believes he's doing so. Uh, and he believes that he's serving God by doing so. That's why he went to the high priest to, for their blessing. And yet, as Jesus confronts him and introduces himself, uh, there's something that we miss in this introduction. Because he gets blinded by the light, and he says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And Jesus' response in the Greek is, I am. It's ego emi, which is the, the divine name, I am, Yahweh. So Jesus responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus' response clues us in to the fact that Paul, Saul, sorry, when, you, when a guy's name and you always refer to him as Paul, it happens, just forgive the Saul-Paul interaction here this morning, okay? So, so, so what we, what's revealed in this moment, though, is that Saul thinks he's serving God, but he meets God and finds out he doesn't know him. He, he's, he, he finds out he, he, he's missed it. This is John chapter 16, verses um, 2 and 3. This is Jesus prophetically saying, this is what will happen. They'll put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because, what does it say? They have not known the Father or me. Is that true in this moment? Absolutely. He thinks he's serving God. He's going to persecute the way. He says, but who are you? I am. That's the divine name. I am God. And he, he also makes himself synonymous with the, the people that are being persecuted. That's the church itself. So uh, moving on, in uh, verse 6, we see that he's told then, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. In God's plan, in God's timing, this whole scenario that's about to play out, all of the specific details that we're about to read were already fixed in the, in the mind of God, in the plan of God. You will be told what you will do. And all of the moving pieces of that for us were already fixed on God's timing. Okay? So in verse 7, we find that the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now, this week I'm focusing on this aspect of 
of what's happening with the Holy Spirit. And next week, we'll kind of recap this story, and we'll talk about what it, the, the specifics of the conversion. But I'm just priming you for, the, for what that's going to look like, okay? So here's what's happened. Saul is originally headed to Damascus, led for, led for and by his own selfish purposes. But now he's led, listen, by others. He's, 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 he's got a plan. He's headed there on his own volition, his own timing, his own strength, blah, 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 right? He confront, he's confronted by God himself in the form of Christ and his glory. He's blinded, and now he's led by someone else. Really, he's, he's uh, without power. And Saul, um, uh, so I think it's critical to recognize that God was always bringing Saul there for his own reasons, even though Saul thought he was going there for his own reasons. It's God that brought Saul here at this time, at this moment, even when um, the means of arrival seem incidental to us or, or, or they just happen to be coincidental, that it's actually God's doing that those things are happening. And so our decisions don't surprise God. They don't throw off his plans. And even when we think that we're running the wrong way, like Jonah, we, we, we tend up actually ending running in the direction that God had intended to set us anyway. Now, um, I think God resets our, resets our feet in a couple of ways when this happens. Uh, what, what happened here for, for Saul in this moment is it removes control from a man who thought he was in control. It removes control from us when we think we are going to run in the wrong direction. And, and God allows us to sort of run out our efforts. And then once we're ready to submit and give up in our ways, then he can lead us to where it is that he always was planning to bring us anyway. And the other way, is that sometimes when, when we try to run the wrong direction and, and we wind up on the right path, it's because we, uh, we, we end up making choices that we would not have naturally made anyway. So I'm going to abbreviate this story as fast as I can, but I think it's really, um, it might be helpful for you. So um, my, my first real job in ministry was a, a small church in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I didn't know anything about how to discern God's will for what it was for us in ministry. And, um, and it just went really poorly for us uh, in terms of us meshing with the church. And we didn't last very long. And I said we because I drug me and my family uh, at a bad time in our, in our lives. Emotionally, um, Rebecca's mom had just uh, was, was critical with cancer. And uh, she passed after we'd been there for only a few months. And uh, just like everything was just really going wrong. We didn't last very long. And at some point we knew that we were going to, we parted ways with this church. And I was given an ultimatum that I could either get out of town and uh, find a new place to go. And uh, then they would pay a severance to us. Or if I stayed in town, they wouldn't pay us anything. And we had some friends that we had developed uh, in a short amount of time. And they offered us a place to stay uh, on the river. It was beautiful. And so I, I was kind of... Um, I was torn between this decision. I, I didn't know what to do. We had no place to go. We didn't really, there was no, it was bad options anywhere you look, okay? And um, we were living in this tiny, this tiny little house. And uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and uh, I was sure that someone had broken in. Like you ever wake up and you just, you're, you know there's another presence in the place that you're at. And so I had done the quick, jump out of bed and look and try to find what it was. And after I had confirmed there wasn't another human being in there, I thought immediately, there's something else going on here. And I, I began to pray that God would protect our, the, the place and our kids. And, and, uh, and that didn't feel right either. And so I, I woke up, Rebecca, and we sat on the couch. And uh, we began talking about it. And then suddenly, 
this is, I'll say, one of two times in my whole life where I knew God was telling me with his voice, you need to leave. And uh, I remember just knowing that we needed to go at that moment. We decided in that moment, it was the Holy Spirit. He woke me up, and it was his presence there. And, uh, and so I knew in that moment the specificity of what we needed to do, even though it didn't make any sense, even though I would have never been in that position had I not made some of the decisions that we made, but I also would not be here. And I would not have had any of the subsequent experiences or anything that followed that without that particular experience. So God used us going there to put us on a path where we were, at that moment, I was just like, I want to go wherever God takes me. I didn't have a choice, though. But to get to that moment of surrender required me getting to that moment of surrender. Do you see it? Okay? And so I I want you to hear that um, you can hear the voice of God without, like, hearing audibly the voice of God. Okay? And so... Um, Saul thinks he's going there for his own selfish purposes, but God had his purposes in mind. So, moving on, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision. So now the Lord has appeared to Ananias in a vision. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street that is called Straight, and to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. And uh, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I, there's so many moving pieces in that. If you just track back, it's like he's seeing a vision about you and you're seeing a vision about him and you're going to meet in the middle. And he's expecting you, so you better show up, right? I feel sorry for people who don't have a particular view of God's providence. They think that he just works in coincidences and generalities. There's no security or hope in that. If, if God just hopefully kicking out like horoscope level, you know, something good might happen to you today. That's, I, I find no security, I find no hope in that. If it's reliant on our ability to discern what's the right step among several possible options which will bring about God's specific purposes, we're, we are without hope in the world. You, you must trust in, in, the, in the particular providence of God. And if you believe God's character and knowledge of you is just as Jesus says, which is he knows, he knows the hairs on your head. He knows your days. Not a sparrow will fall without his knowledge of it. He feeds them. That kind of particularity applies to you. So what makes you think that he operates in generalities about other things? He doesn't. Okay? So by implication, God cares for our specific needs. He has a specific plan. And we see the, the very individual details However, knowing all of that is, is almost what keeps us from walking sometimes because we're looking for the specific kinds of details like this before we decide it's okay to move forward. So when it lacks specifics, work in generalities, okay? If, if you wait for the specific, take four steps forward and then stop, wait for four seconds and then take five steps, like that kind of specificity, you, you will be petrified and never move anywhere. And God wants us to move. That's why he said go, okay? So go. Too often, we're looking for a secret underground aquifer while we're standing waist deep in a river, okay? You, you guys ever see the divining rod, you know, which is supposed to find the, the secret, you know, you're in the desert, and you're trying to find the, the secret aquifer. And it's like we're trying to do this with God's will while wading waist deep in a river. Okay, he's given you most of what you need to know. 
If we're waiting for the specifics before we do anything, we've missed what it is that he said. All right, I gotta, I'm sorry, I gotta move. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. There's, there's good, compelling reasons why Ananias should not obey what it is that God's asking him to do, right? If I go there, I don't know what he'll do to me. At, at best, he'll bind me and take me to Jerusalem. At, at worst, he might kill me, right? He's breathing murderous threats. We have lots of reasons and excuses for not obeying God. We think that uh, what, he, what it is that he asks us to do will always fall in line with our, our particular level of common sense. It will always follow what it is that we generally like to do, you know? He's given me the desires of my heart, and therefore he won't ask outside of those. Booey. That's not true, okay? <laughs> Common sense keeps us from experiencing more of God in faith than I think anything else does. You, you, you trust in your common sense more than you trust in faith and in, in what it is that God will provide for you if you would trust him. And, uh, and, you, and you need to hear that we have a million reasons and excuses why we should choose our own decision instead of just simple obedience. But the Lord tells Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Go. The question that I think we get wrong at the bus stop, right, is not how do I get where it is that God wants me to get there, right? Which bus should I take? Which route should I take? How do I know if it's the right bus or the wrong bus, right? It, it, that, that's the wrong question. Is not how do I figure out where it is that God wants me to go, but God wants me to go. How can I get there? God has called you to go to a destination. And that destination is not a place. It's, it's a way of being. And it's, it's, it's not, how, how is God going to provide me the way to get there? It's, I know I'm supposed to be there. What possible means can I take? I'll take the first thing that you give me. And, and so I think we wait so long for God to give us this specific thing that we know it's the right exact um, time and, and all the other things, that we never make the, um, the decision. So God has laid plans, he's made preparations, and we're often preoccupied with finding the plan rather than walking, rather than just obeying the go part of it, looking for your path or a specific person that God wants you to talk to or a specific position that he wants you to be in. Um, our lives are full of opportunities that we waste because we're waiting for God to give us another sign. God's reassurance to Ananias is not, um, don't worry about it. It's okay, nothing bad will happen to you. He, he doesn't reassure him that, that, that his, his, his fears are misplaced. He says, go, because I have purposes for this man. Because I have something I need accomplished, and you're the vessel that I'm going to use to do that, and he's a vessel that I'm going to use to do those purposes, and so on and so on. So promptness is important. It says that Ananias departed and he entered the house. Delayed obedience is not obedience. It says he departed, he entered the house, and he laid his hands on, uh, on him. Excuse me. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Ananias goes because God told him to go. And then he, he, he had full obedience. It took courage for him to actually lay hands on the guy that could 
lay hands on him, right? And so um, delayed obedience is not obedience, and less than full obedience is not obedience. Ananias acted in faith, treating God's will, God's plan, God's voice as this cosmic maze that we have to try and figure out and uncover as though it is a secret, hidden thing is stupid. Do I have your attention? If I have something I want my children to do, my children that I love and care for and want the best for, if I have something I want them to do, I do not hide my plans and my purposes for them. I don't wait for them to try and guess the right order of steps. I don't withhold the information that they need to get there. In fact, I make all of that clear up front. Doing so would not just make me a bad communicator, it would make me a bad father, would it not? Of course it would. My kids know in generalities what I want for them. So barring like some specific things, they can operate through most situations without my help. But if they have a question, they could ask, right? So I, wanna, I want you to see um, something like uh, 95% of what uh, we have questions about, okay? is already solved by what God has already said, okay? He's already said regarding his moral will for our lives or by telling his plans and purposes for his people who belong to him. We have questions like, what about this specific thing I'm wondering about? Do I go here or there? What about a specific choice? What if I do this or that? So I want you to notice two things. that I, My intention this morning is to give you the confidence to, to know that God is not hiding things from you and that he wants you to reach exactly what it is that he has for you and that you would walk confidently in that, but, but do so with, with faith, okay? And so at this moment, we, are, we get bound up and tripped up in the specifics because we think everything needs to be very specific. And, and, and um, this is a unique moment, just like many of the other unique moments in Acts. So when we see the specificity of what happens for Philip and what happens for Ananias and what will then happen for Saul and what happens for Paul going throughout the rest of the book, these are unique because there's a distinction about what needs to happen for the, for the gospel to go forward versus what you need to do in, in choosing between, you know, vanilla or chocolate, right? There's, there, there's a distinction there. But first and foremost, refer to the 95% rule. God will not forsake what he's already told you to tell you something different. And he does not need to repeat again something he's already said to tell you what you need to do. So go by mostly what he's already told you in his word, okay? So hesitation, obstinance on our part is often due to doubt. So here's my encouragement for you so that you can walk forward without wondering about all these things. Faith plus honesty will not be put to shame. Faith plus honesty will not be put to shame. Romans 10 verse 11 says, those that trust in the Lord put their faith in him will not be put to shame. I want to give, let me give that, put shoes on that for you, okay? What I try to do with this is like that. I'm not perfect at it, but let me just give you an example. If, if we meet as the elders, I try to acknowledge my particular um, bent towards something. I'll say, here's what I, I think we should do, but I acknowledge that I have a bias in this thing. And so I'm asking you to help see if, if my bias is wrong or right. Um, you, you can help me see through that. But I want to be honest about my motivations, which is where I think most of us skip over. We, we want God to give us the answer we're already hoping he'll give us without being real honest about the motives about why we want that answer. And it generally has to do with our desire 
to retain control over our lives or wanting to not experience suffering or to have to give something up. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes, but not really sorry. But faith plus honesty will not be put to shame. You can, if you will, put your faith in God and be honest before him, he will not, he will not forsake you. And if you make a decision that seems to be way, way wrong, and it just it seems like you blew it and everything just collapses, okay? You're me <laughs> at, at, at my first ministry job, right? You're me, and you're in that moment, you're like, I chose this thing and it went terribly wrong. I must have made the wrong decision. That's not faith in God. That's faith in results. That, that's not faith in God. That's faith in your ability to choose. Okay? So faith plus honesty will not be put to shame. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That's the other thing. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But... Let him ask in faith. You, you have to not just ask, but then be willing to go in faith when, it is, when, he, when he reveals it to you. The Holy Spirit is God. He's never mistaken. He's never wrong. He's never miscalculated. He's never got the wrong, the wrong time, the wrong train. He, he's, he's perfect without error, right? So when we look at what it is that the Holy Spirit's doing and... and uh, and we say that he's without error. If we trust him, then we must, we must believe that even in our bad decisions, even in our wrong steps, even when we're not completely and abundantly honest with our motives, that God will get us to the place he wants us to be. He will take you to the place he wants you to be. He will not leave you or forsake you in that manner. Uh, I won't take credit for it, but it's a great analogy. Um, from our perspective, this is what life looks like. It's, it's a, a tangled mess of, of go here, stop there. It's knots, it's, it's, it's loose ends, it's, it's stray colors, there's no organization, there's no real rhyme and reason to it. It's just a mess. But it's the underside of the tapestry that God's weaving. And our perspective is that we only get to see the bottom of it. And so it's faith that trust that God is weaving something beautiful on the other side if we would go in faith and just be obedient. Trust, trust, go, go. Jesus wants us to walk in faith and follow the Holy Spirit. So I'm, I'm getting to the end. I promise I'll be quick. In Galatians chapter 5, we're told we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. We're supposed to be led by the Spirit. And uh, we're like, yeah, it's good, right? I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to, I want to do that. And Galatians 3 gives us the point to consider about how we might do that. So Galatians 3 verse 2 says this. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. This is this is Paul now. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul asks about the origination of their faith. Did, did you receive the Spirit by doing? Like, were you out on your own looking for God? Or, let me try another thing. You were going your own way, doing your own thing, having your own purposes, your own desires, your own thoughts, and God found you, Right? And he opened your eyes, and he set your feet on the right path. And then he brought you about. Did, did you do any of that by your own efforts and your own ability to get that straight? This is essentially the question Paul's asking. Did, did you bring that about on your own? And he's like, the rhetorical answer is, duh, no, right? 
So then he continues, so what makes you think you're moving forward or continuing or getting to the end of what it is that God has for you by doing it on your own or by your own means or your own ability? Does it make sense? It's not by your discernment. It's not going to be your ability to pick the right bus at the right time or find the right map on the bottom of the, bus, uh, the, the, the bench or whatever, right? It's not by your ability. It comes down to walking in faith. So restating this for our purposes. If you will go and know that God has an end for you and a purpose for you, and his, morale, his, his moral law for you has already been stated, yeah, don't walk in sin. And when you do, repent, right? That, that's the clear stuff. It's the, how do I get to uh, be in the right job? Or how do I know if I should buy this house or that house? Or what, what school should I attend? Or what, okay, those kinds of questions, okay? Go. Because God's purpose for you is that you would be a light wherever he takes you. And so if you, if you base it on thinking that you will not be, quote unquote, successful because you choose the wrong path, you've missed the point. Because God has God is placed you wherever you are and wherever he leads you for the purpose of being a light for him. That's, that's the end goal. It's not to arrive at the destination. It's to be with the person as you go. Does it make sense? Okay. Ask for wisdom. God's will and way will prevail in your life. Isaiah 55, verses 7 through 9, and I'll leave you with this. Let the wicked forsake his way. That means stop going in your own way, in your own thoughts, an unrighteous man in his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Why? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let's pray.